Hello, this is Dr. Sarah Gottfried, and today we'll be mapping the ketogenic diet on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, practices, dietary theories, and healing foods that have been used in the most successful practices across the globe and throughout history. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. The 15-Minute Matrix is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons which highlight the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition, and that's the functional matrix. The functional nutrition matrix reminds us of three very important factors in our clinical care. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I have the great opportunity to welcome Dr. Sarah Godfried back to the mic. Sarah Gottfried, MD, is a board-certified physician who graduated from Harvard and MIT. She practices evidence-based integrative precision and functional medicine. She is clinical assistant professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at Thomas Jefferson University and director of precision medicine at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health. Her three New York Times bestselling books include The Hormone Cure, The Hormone Reset Diet, and Younger. Her newest book is called Women, Food, and Hormones, and I can't wait to get my hands on it. Speaking of getting your hands on clinical pearls, do be sure to go to 15minutematrix.com to get the downloadable matrix, as I noted earlier. This one is created by Dr. Gottfried herself and is loaded with great information to accompany our conversation. And heads up, today's episode is a bit longer than our usual 15 minutes or so, but I think you will thank me for that after you listen. So let's dive in. Sarah, I am thrilled to have you back on the show. Welcome back to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you so much, Andrea. I'm so happy to be here. Well, oftentimes, as you know, when we talk about one kind of diet, it's just like a celebration for all the positive benefits without any of the insight into the potential deficiencies, toxicities, or physiological or even psychological gotchas. So I really appreciate how you always bring a more holistic perspective to the table, which I know we'll be exploring today. But I'm wondering if you could just start us off by articulating what's meant by a ketogenic diet and what we know about its history. Great question. I feel like you're spot on that we spend too much time focusing on the celebration of the ketogenic diet, whereas we really need to see it as a therapeutic food plan. So the way that I define it is that it is a low carbohydrate, moderate protein, high fat therapeutic diet that's been proven to be effective for a number of different conditions, such as metabolic inflexibility, obesity, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and even drug refractory epilepsy. 
So we've got the best data for those particular conditions. We also have some emerging data looking at Alzheimer's disease and mild cognitive impairment. So interesting. I know having dealt with my husband's brain tumor, there was also some emerging research around head and neck cancers, but I don't know where that's gone in the last two decades. The data is still quite good with certain types of cancer. So I think it's important here to be aware that there's some differential response. So there are some tumors that do feed on glucose, and that's true for a number of head and neck cancers. You know, you and I are both friends with Patrick Hannaway, who's talked quite a bit about his N of 1 experimentation with his cancer using the ketogenic diet. But there's also some data showing that there are types of cancers that do not respond favorably to the ketogenic diet. So part of what I think we're doing here as we map the ketogenic diet is to make sure that we're not cherry picking, that we're really clear about the evidence and what it shows us and also where we lack evidence or where there might be some increased risk. There's an oncologist at Columbia Siddhartha Mukherjee, who is leading the charge looking at the ketogenic diet as a treatment or an adjunct treatment in certain types of cancer. And this is a place where I really encourage people to consult with their oncologists to get a fuller picture of the risks and benefits. I'm so glad you brought up his work because, of course, he looks at the genes as well. And one of the things you have identified on the beautiful matrix that you created is that there are certain genotypes that actually work better with a ketogenic diet and some that don't. Can you speak into that a little bit more? Well, I'd say with genomics and really understanding some of those genetic factors that modulate the response to the ketogenic diet, separating high responders from maybe low responders, we're still in the learning to crawl stage where I wish we had really clear kind of clinically relevant information, ideally from trial data, to tell us about particular SNP patterns and the nutrigenomic impact of those vis-a-vis the ketogenic diet. But there's at least the beginning of the conversation. So there's genes that govern different aspects of the ketogenic diet response, such as ketone production, uptake and clearance, cholesterol production, uptake and clearance, the glucose and insulin pathways, of course, cognitive function, the ability to keto adapt, and also weight loss. So some of these particular SNPs I went ahead and listed on the matrix, although space was limited. (laughs) Time and space are limited. (laughs) Exactly. But these are, you know, a lot of these code for metabolic enzymes like cholesterol, ester transfer protein, hepatic glycogen synthase, gastric lipase. So some of those are listed in that upper left-hand corner under antecedents. Yeah. And it's so interesting to think when we go through what the research is telling us, as you noted, are we or are we not cherry picking data from the research? And then how that transcends to our clinical work 
and what's actually happening in an individual's body, that N of one for each of us. And there are a number of mediators that I'm wondering if you can speak into a little bit more. You talked and mentioned the ketone production, but what else should we be thinking about in terms of those mediators? Yeah, the list of mediators, I would say, are what I've observed in my practice. And I should take a step back and say that maybe seven, 10 years ago, I started to see a lot of keto refugees in my practice. And I take care of both men and women. I practice precision medicine, but I would say probably 70% of my patients are women. And it was women who were really struggling with a ketogenic diet. You know, they may have gone on to keto with a male partner or a male colleague and their partner or colleague is getting all of the benefits and they are seeing less of a result. So some of that is the testosterone advantage. But in terms of mediators, what I see includes fasting. Fasting, I think of as a backdoor to generate ketones or to get people into ketosis. Typically, will take 14 to 18 hours, sometimes longer in women to get into ketosis with fasting. Exercise, high perceived stress, the dose of carbohydrates and also the carb threshold, the dose of protein, because excess protein, of course, can trigger gluconeogenesis and raise glucose, leading to less of a benefit with keto. Too little fat, too much fat, alcohol, food reactions, and even the menstrual cycle. I think that's a really important factor that a lot of people don't pay attention to. Some of the studies that are now quite old looking at patients with epilepsy that included both men and women. Most of the research, unfortunately, is in men. But what they found was up to a 45% change in menstrual cycle in the females that were on a ketogenic diet for epilepsy. So we want to be aware of some of these changes that occur in the cycle that can affect nutrition and response to the ketogenic diet. I feel like we could spend 15 minutes on each of the areas of the matrix, like (laughs) actually each little segment or node. But you mentioned that most of the research is done in men. And I think that's really important for us to note because of the complexities and the differentiation that can be happening at a hormone level when we employ these tactics without fully understanding its therapeutic use for our own bodies or those we're trying to serve. Exactly right. And I think, unfortunately, what happens from a research perspective is that investigators assume that women have so much more complexity because of, you know, every day of the menstrual cycle for women who are still menstruating, they've got a different level of estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, as well as other hormones. And so women end up getting excluded. And that's even true in animal studies because that there's this extra layer of hormonal variability. And the net result is that we assume that what's true in men also applies to women. And I think we find over and over again, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. So I think understanding some of these sex and even gender differences and how they impact things like the response to a therapeutic intervention like keto, that's really important for us to understand. And also, as you listed on the matrix, there are those areas of not just sex and gender, but time in life. So thinking about puberty or pregnancy or lactation, I don't know what your thoughts are on menopause. I'm sure there are many. (laughs) 
you have, but just how that might shift our considerations of using ketogenic diets as well. It does shift my approach to using the ketogenic diet. I do think women in menopause can especially benefit from a well-formulated, clean ketogenic diet. One thing to keep in mind is that the backdrop for the perimenopausal transition is that there's really so much dynamism. There's so much change that occurs, not just in estrogen and progesterone, but also in IGF-1 signaling and growth hormone, in insulin and its relationship to estradiol. And what women often notice is that they've got this redistribution that occurs in perimenopause where related to changes in insulin and estrogen, they've got more fat deposition at the waist, so more visceral adiposity, whereas before menopause, most women are depositing more fat compared to men at the breasts, hips, and buttocks. So there's this real change in the way that clothes fit. A lot of women will report that. But I also think that's then a great opportunity to be able to assess, even interrogate, metabolic flexibility in our patients, and then to use a tool such as the ketogenic diet to create the greatest metabolic flexibility. And a couple other questions just for clarification. Any thoughts on people who have previous issues with disordered eating or food restriction? Anything we should be thinking through there in our considerations? Well, this is always top of mind for me. I think I may have revealed to you before, Andrea, that I'm someone who has a history of disordered eating. So I had anorexia, not enough to be hospitalized in high school, but definitely I'm on the restrictive end of the spectrum. And then I had bulimia through my 20s into my 30s. So I'm really sensitive to the risk of orthorexia, you know, kind of an unhealthy preoccupation with healthy eating. And I have a frank discussion with my patients about whether we want to just stick with a balanced food plan that maybe we personalize in terms of carb dose and carb threshold versus going to something more extreme, such as the ketogenic diet. Because I do think it can kick up some of those old patterns of learning to eat as a way of coping with stress and trauma. Yeah. So I'm really mindful of that. I think you know it requires a conversation. I wouldn't say that I withhold a treatment from a patient because they have that history. I think it just means that we have to go down that path of talking about it. Yeah. So important. And thank you for sharing that piece of your history. The other thing I just wanted to bank on here is what we mean by ketogenic diet in terms of the makeup of the foods, whether we're measuring, which I think can also trigger a lot of unhealthy mindsets, particularly for women, but not women restricted. And also what's typically thought of as sort of popular keto versus therapeutic keto. Because as we move into the central part of the matrix, a lot of the popular keto diets are including foods that are highly inflammatory. Definitely. I think that's an important point that for most people to get into nutritional ketosis, they have to restrict their carbs beyond a certain level. So the classic composition of the macronutrients is 70-20-10, 70% of calories per day from fat, 
20% of calories from protein, 10% from carbs. And that can trigger, especially for those of us with a history of disordered eating, that kind of attentiveness to macronutrients, I think, can take us down that path of an unhealthy preoccupation or even obsession. So if that is true, then I think there's a way to be more graceful about it. What I like to do is to focus on net carbs. So one of the things I talk about in my new book is to use net carbs to aim for somewhere around 20 to 25 net carbs per day. And I think that helps because it allows people to really zero in on, okay, how much fiber am I getting? How much am I feeding those benevolent microbes in my gut? And to focus on that, as well as, you know, maybe adding more plant-based oil to their diet, that can be an in-between step that can allow you to experiment and see if you can get into nutritional ketosis, especially if you combine it, for instance, with intermittent fasting, without maybe getting so obsessive about the macronutrients. So I think that piece is important. And then you also made such a key distinction between what you're calling the popular ketogenic diet, I think of it as sort of classic keto, mm-hmm. where you have a lot of bacon and fat bombs and, you know, maybe a little dairy steak and eggs, and dairy and <laughs> eggs, and, you know, maybe two green beans. Like that's, right. that's not going to be good for the microbiome. I think we can all agree to that. And we know that it decreases, for instance, alpha diversity of the microbiome. And that is in distinction from a well-formulated, clean ketogenic diet that is much more plant-forward and includes those prebiotic fibers that are so healthy that help you with short-chain fatty acids that, you know, really help with the metabolic function from the inside out, starting with your gut. Right. Because there is some research about the impacts of a keto diet on the microbiome. And you noted that there might be some shifts early on that can regulate. Is that with the support of the fiber and the prebiotics and probiotics? The data overall is mixed. So I I think that's important to say first. But some of the research shows that the initial decrease in bacterial diversity, especially in patients with epilepsy, then reverts to normal at 12 weeks. Hmm. So there is some benefit long-term, but I really am not comfortable telling my patients to restrict prebiotic fibers, to restrict vegetables for 12 weeks. I just, it's hard for me to fathom how that can be helpful long-term. Right. So I tend to have a more generous hand with especially the detoxifying vegetables, making sure that there's plenty of polyphenols, there's five colors a day. I really like to make sure that they have a varied plate. I think classic keto, if you look at a classic keto plate, it looks tan and brown. (laughs) There's just (laughs) not much in the way of color, whereas the well-formulated clean ketogenic diet has a lot of different color, a lot of plant diversity, which we know then translates into microbial diversity. So Sarah, I want to talk about hormones because I know that's your place of passion. Before we do, can we talk a little bit about the hormone backbone of cholesterol and where there might be some cautionary tales with a keto diet? Yes. Well, I would say there's a cautionary tale here with restricting fat too much because I think we've fortunately moved away from 
a low fat diet. But what I found, if I think back to when I was in medical school and I was taking anatomy the first semester, I was really distraught about dissecting my cadaver. And it got me to really change my diet. I stopped eating meat. I went 100% plant-based. And this was also the era of Dean Ornish. And so I was eating a low-fat, plant-based diet. And what I remember, Andrea, is that my breast size decreased. They basically deflated. I went down like two cup sizes. My cholesterol went to, this maybe my first end of one experiment. My cholesterol went to about 120 You can make that an N of two. I had the same experience. (laughs) You had the same experience. (laughs) And we're the same age, yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh, okay. So we are in the bucket together. Many buckets that we're in together. (laughs) Oh my gosh, yeah. So there I was, you know, none of my bras fit and I felt terrible. I was depressed. Yeah. I had mood issues. And now we know, of course, that low cholesterol is associated with depression. It's associated with suicide. It's not good for brain health. And so you need a sufficient amount of fat to make these hormones because we all know that cholesterol is what converts into the sex hormones. We all know that from the sex hormone pathway, then converts onto pregnenolone, uh, the mother hormone of all sex hormones, progesterone, cortisol, takes a right hand turn on that sex hormone pathway to DHEA, testosterone, the estrogens. And so if you don't have sufficient fat, you're going to go down that path of just depleting your sex hormones. On the other hand, we want to get the right fat. We want to get the right dose of fat. We want to get the right fat. And going back for a moment to some of those antecedents, there are certain SNPs like APOA2. That particular SNP is associated with a greater risk of insulin resistance in response to saturated fat. That's one SNP I have personal experience with. So I know that I do better in terms of sex hormone balance with eating more plant-based fat. So part of keto for me personally is to use a lot of extra virgin olive oil, avocado oil, macadamia nut oil. I use a lot of nuts and seeds and I have less saturated fat in terms of my diet. So that's an example of how fat can really affect some of these downstream factors such as sex hormone production. Anything you want to add to that since you are in this N of two experiment with me? Yes, our N of two. I think there really is a personalization here. First of all, like we're talking about, and I I hate putting the labels good and bad, but really looking at the quality of the fats and then which fats work for us individually. I can eat a lot of saturated fat. It does not make me feel good. Like you, I prefer the plant-based fats, all those good oils. I have to be careful with my nuts and seeds. I'm good to eat them, but I can easily overdo them. And I know that place in myself where I'm overdoing it. And I think it is that tuning in that can help us to find that and looking at some of these biomarkers like you're talking about, because I have seen people who go to a ketogenic diet and then their LDL in particular and their triglycerides are going up, even though we know that we have to be looking at glucose and insulin. In addition for those triglycerides, I do see negative effects from eating too much saturated fat. Definitely. You just said so many things that I think are important that I want to emphasize. 
I am also a overeater of nuts. <laughs> <laughs> they're so easy to overeat. They're tiny little packages. And they're so delicious. Yes. Yeah. And you know what the data shows is that 28 grams is really kind of the healthy amount in terms of the benefits of nuts. That's not very many. That's basically a handful, a small handful of almonds or whatever nut you prefer. So I want to highlight that particular point especially for folks who are trying to become more metabolically healthy. I care less about weight and the number on the scale. I care more about metabolic flexibility, fat mass, maintaining muscle mass as you get older. So hopefully that comes through really clearly in this conversation today. You also talked about interoception, which I think is such an important piece of nutrition and functional medicine. I'm curious about your experience with interoception, because part of my challenge, whether it's on a ketogenic diet or some other personalized food plan, is that I think I broke my interoception when I went through my medical training. So often that means I have to rely on other measures to get that kind of feedback, whether it's a continuous glucose monitor or a glucose meter or measuring my ketones or even looking at things like heart rate variability. That's part of the reason why I love wearables so much because it helps me to develop that interoception again. Yeah, I love that reflection from you. I know in functional nutrition, that's our primary goal to come back to that ability to tune in to what's happening in our bodies. I like to think of it as nonviolent communication with self, right? How are we not overriding the messages that our body is telling us? And sometimes we might need support, some kind of hearing aid there, which are the wearables, right? But I often find I know in advance that something's not right before I even get the test result back. I'll have a sense of like, you know what, this hormone's off or something needs to be dealt with there. And it's that fine tuning, and I'm far from perfect, but I'm trying to tune in and be a bit more organic with how I eat because like you, even though I never had a diagnosed eating disorder, I tend towards control. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and, right there that, with you, sister. <laughs> that desire to control can manifest in my food choices and my food rules for myself. And so I'm constantly playing with where's the information coming from and how do I make sure to include my own intuition, that introception, and really just keep that as part of one of my kind of internal gauges. Love it. I feel like, you know, it's way beyond functional nutrition to help our patients develop that introception, that feedback loop, that sense of the wisdom of the body. I also really like what you said about nonviolent communication with oneself. I've been thinking a lot about social genomics. And to me, social genomics really starts with that self-conversation, that self-compassion. And even you were talking about that desire to control. It's a tough day when you realize that control is a bit of a delusion. Oh my gosh. I don't know <laughs> how many times I have to be reminded, right? Like I, I'll, I've had these times in my life, like I think trying to get pregnant, but then, you know, my husband's illness and death, I was like, okay, I get it. I can't control 
the universe and its outcomes, but I still need to be reminded. And I'm like, really? Did I not get this? But yes, we like control, especially those of us women who are driven and we've overcome to get to where we are. So yeah, it's such an interesting journey that relationship with control or lack of control. I love Stephen Covey's model of the circle of influence. There's what's in our control and there's what's far outside of our control that's in our concern level. And either of those places create anxiety. But when we draw that circle of influence, which is really what I think we're doing with functional nutrition or what I hope we're doing with functional nutrition, we're drawing that circle of influence. That gives us a place where we don't have control, but we do have influence. You put that so cogently. And like you, I need constant reminders. So as soon as we finish, I'm going to look up Stephen Covey's circle of influence. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) It's very helpful. You can just think of it as a circle in the middle of control, a circle out really broadly of concern. And in between is that circle of influence. And I just find it really useful. Some of our models are based on that. But I want to bring you back to the hormones and the ketogenic diet. And I know we talked a lot about the sex hormones and the backbone, the cholesterol. What about the thyroid? Because that's such a huge concern, a growing concern for so many of us women. Yeah, I wish I had really great data to share with you about the effect of the ketogenic diet on thyroid function. I can tell you anecdotally that some of those keto refugees that showed up in my practice had worsening thyroid function. Often what I would see is low T3, so T4 to T3 conversion was impacted by the ketogenic diet. We're talking mostly about the classic, as you said, popular ketogenic diet and high reverse T3, which blocks thyroid function. So That's a bit of a stress response. You know, it's kind of like the break that the body has on metabolism when it's under stress. And there are definitely some people who respond to a low carbohydrate diet with a stress response. So we want to be thinking about that. We want to be assessing perceived stress, assessing sometimes cortisol, diurnal cortisol, cortisol awakening response, as well as thyroid function. I remember when I first started to look at integrative medicine and functional medicine, there was an endocrinologist down in Santa Barbara who would talk about how women need more carbohydrates than men. They need it for thyroid and adrenal function. And I was so intrigued by that. I never found much in the way of robust data to support this, but I think the anecdotal observation probably has some truth to it, or at least we need to personalize. There's some women who respond in that way, and we just want to be aware of it. Mm, Yeah, good to know. Okay, so I'm going to move us over to the right side of the matrix. And I love that you talked about the therapeutic pulse. Can you define that for us in relation to a keto diet? What I love is a four-week ketogenic pulse. So I don't think of keto as a long-term way of eating. I think we want to use it usually in an N of one framework to see if it's the right fit for an individual. And there's a lot of different ways that you can assess whether it's the right fit. You could track body composition, you could track continuous glucose data. 
You could track glucose ketone index, lots of different metrics that we can measure, or just track mood. You know, increasingly, what I'm seeing is that many of my psychiatrist friends are realizing how much metabolism is involved in mental health. And they're understanding that this neurometabolic tool of using something like a ketogenic diet can really be impactful when it comes to depression, bipolar, binge eating disorder, anorexia, even schizophrenia. There's a guy named Chris Palmer at Harvard who's done some of this initial work, mostly case studies. So I am a fan of a four-week pulse. When you get beyond four weeks, that's where I start to want to look at biomarkers, to look at how the body is responding to the ketogenic diet. So things like an advanced lipid panel, looking at inflammatory biomarkers, looking at insulin, glucose, and metabolic flexibility. So I'm a fan of four weeks. That's really the pulse that I prefer. I think of the body as the system where I'm a big fan of hormesis, where we kind of push on the body in a gentle way and see how it bounces back. So that's why I've chosen four weeks as that ketogenic pulse. Now, the literature supports using a ketogenic diet for longer than that, for up to six months, in some cases, a maximum of two years. The Verda study, as an example, looking at type 2 diabetics, went a year and then a second incarnation was going out longer than a year. And what they found, as an example, is that there was about a 10% increase in LDL cholesterol, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. They didn't measure LDLP and lipo little a and some of the other factors that I would like to be looking at. But I think once you get longer than four weeks, you really need to be monitoring. And you want to be thinking of this as a medical intervention that requires medical monitoring including looking at micronutrient gaps. Yeah, so important. And I love that idea that we're checking in, that we're using it therapeutically. It's not a one and done. As I always say, nutrition is in a handout for many reasons that you've been articulating for us today. What would you say to people who talk about how long it takes to get keto adapted or even get to the place where you're utilizing ketones with that pulse? Well, what I find is that most people are able to get into nutritional ketosis within seven to 10 days. Hmm. And there's some ways that you can accelerate that process. For example, making sure that you're getting sufficient salt, minerals, and electrolytes. I think that's a really important part of becoming keto adapted. I also think that the amount of time it takes to become keto adapted is in itself a sign of metabolic inflexibility. Good point. So for me, as an example, the first time I tried keto and failed back in 2016, I took about a week to get into ketosis. And I think that was related to how carb intolerant I was, how spiky my glucose was in response to food. And I especially would find that depending on where I was in my menstrual cycle, I would pop out of ketosis. So keto adaptation has a lot of different drivers behind it, and we want to be paying attention to those for folks who take longer to get into ketosis. But you still get a benefit. You know, if it takes you seven to 10 days to get into ketosis, you still are going to get a benefit for the rest of those four weeks. If you want to extend 
the period of ketosis to four weeks. I think that's a reasonable thing to do. It's just, that's the place where I want to be tracking some of those biomarkers. Yeah, it makes so much sense. So we can see how is this body responding to this intervention. I can't let you go without mentioning some of the things we might experience in those early days, because I do like to say that the non-negotiable trifecta is sleep, poop, and blood sugar balance. So of course, we're aiming to mitigate any blood sugar imbalances with the ketogenic diet. But as I see you noted, we can have some sleep disruption which can then be negatively contributing to what we're trying to support. What does the research say and what have you found clinically happening with sleep? Good question. So I, I can't answer that from a, the scientific evidence. I can speak to it more from what I've seen in my medical practice as well as in myself. What I see with a lot of patients is that when they start producing ketones, when they become keto-adapted, it's almost like they hear the angels singing. I don't want to like overemphasize this, but <laughs> there's this benefit in terms of mental acuity that can really rev people up. Mm. Where they feel like they've got focus and concentration that is, you know, worlds different than maybe when they were burning carbs. Most of the time they didn't experience. So that delta can be really motivating for people, but I think we also have to be cautious. So it's almost like a mild hypomania that I see in these patients, and they just have a really difficult time winding down before bed. So sleep hygiene becomes really important to really emphasize that if our goal is metabolic flexibility, you got to get the seven to 8.5 hours of sleep every night to really get all these signaling pathways to line up and create the metabolic flexibility that we're after. So I agree. I would say all of those non-negotiables are such an important part of the ketogenic diet, especially sleep and pooping. You've got to be pooping pretty much every day to get the detoxification pathways open so that you can really tolerate that change in macronutrients and what that does to your hormones and to your microbiome. Dr. Sarah, I love speaking with you. I love your work and the really the broad perspective you bring us into, especially when it comes to diets or dietary theory, really bringing us back to the function of the body. Is there anything else that you wish we all knew before we run out and buy the new book <laughs> about the ketogenic diet when we're thinking about its therapeutic usage? Yes. One last thing I want to mention is that I think a lot about dietary interventions such as the ketogenic diet in terms of its pleiotropic effects. And with keto, I think one of the reasons why we see so many benefits and we also see the popularity relates to what these ketones are doing in the body. So if we look at the pleiotropic effects, I'm not going to go through all of them, but if we just look at beta-hydroxybutyrate and what it does to the inflammatory pathways, what it does in terms of helping you with metabolic flexibility, how it helps with redox signaling and helps with oxidative stress, the way that ketone bodies improve mitochondrial bioenergetics. These are some of those pleiotropic effects that I think are very important for functional nutritionists to understand. And I think we want to be careful, hopefully this came through clearly in our podcast today, 
not to pigeonhole keto as a weight loss tool, and instead to really think much more globally about function, about metabolic flexibility, because that's really the place that I like to focus with my patients that I recommend a ketogenic diet for. Yeah, so brilliantly said. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. My pleasure. So fun to be with you. You too. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 